This is Jason Saft of Stage to Sell Home. You're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. Pleased to have Jason Saft on The Real Talk Podcast. Jason and I have been industry colleagues for a whopping 14 plus years. He's one of the founding members and agents of Compass, where he was tasked to work on the management team overseeing the older business model of Compass, AKA Urban Compass. Jason started his career at City Habitats where he was an agent there for 10 years. City Habitats was then one of the largest rental brokerages in New York City. Fast forward to present time, Jason is the creator and founder of Stage to Sell Home, a leading home boutique staging firm in New York City and Brooklyn. In 2020, Jason Saf and Stage to Sell Home were awarded Best Luxury Home Stager and Best Occupied Home Stager in the United States by RESA Real Estate Staging Association. Stage to Sell Home features a 30-point action plan that he applies to all properties he represents. He is known for his abilities to repeatedly break sales records, reintroduce properties that other agents and independent sellers were unable to close, most importantly, and deliver dramatic property transformations. Jason has an innate ability to transform a space from what it is to what it should be in order to achieve the highest return for his sellers and to help his buyers understand the value and opportunity. A few examples of work he's completed includes a Williamsburg condo at 970 Kent, a unit originally listed at $999,000 on April 4th, 2022, sold for $216,000 above the unit that was directly below that unit. He also staged a penthouse at 7 Essex in the Lower East Side, which was on the market for lucky number or unlucky number, 666 days without selling, but in contract after 20 days at over $120,000 over asking price. He staged another unit at 901 Lexington, which was on the market for a year with two different brokerages, but went into contract after just 26 days on market uh, after Jason staged the premises. Another Park Slope Townhouse, multifamily, listed by Leonard Seinberg, our friend and friend of the podcast and colleague and president or ex-president, the evangelical figure of Compass. Rather than going for a six-figure price drop, they decided to hire Jason to stage the townhouse and went into contract in just 22 days once fully staged. The success list really goes on and we're here to dive into his incredible business he's developed. Please follow Jason on Instagram at stage to sell home and his website, stagetosellhome.com. I'm also going to plug in on the show notes a couple articles that he's been mentioned, including Wall Street Journal, most recently. Congratulations. Thank you. And also the New York Times, along with AM New York and a few other articles that talks about the real estate landscape of New York City. So Jason, welcome. Thank you. Let's talk about it. See what I did there? Very good. I'm here with my co-host, Danielle Stout. <laughs> I love it. There we go. I got to say, um, that newsletter, we're going to pull it up on people that aren't, uh, people that are watching on YouTube, we're going to pull it up on the uh, actual screen. But the transformation is incredible. Thank you. So we're going to deep, go deep dive into that as well. But before yes. we get into all that. Before we go deep. Let's let the listeners get to know you. Sure. All right. Oh. So your thoughts in a few words. Zillow, Street Easy. Okay. Listen, I think everything serves a place. I know there's obviously a lot of acrimony in the in the agent world with Zillow and Street Easy. And I understand the frustration of it, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, those businesses are here to stay. And I think this is when, you know, again, I'm, I'm not really an agent anymore, but as an agent, 
you know, this is when like building those personal networks and having those fears and really working them and knowing your clients, you rely less and less on leads from aggregation. So I think the, the agents who have a wider network have less sort of animosity towards aggregation. But, you know, I think, I think people have to stop fighting it and accept that it's here and, and figure out what works best for them. It's here to stay. Okay, thank you for those few words. Those chestnuts. Very, very, chestnuts, very yeah. In-depth. Words of wisdom, uh, or wow. Your thoughts on the real deal? Um, I think it also, it serves a place. Um, you know, we live in a culture and always have that enjoys gossip and industry news. You know, at the end of the day, they're looking to sell papers and advertising space. So they go with stories and headlines that grab attention and get, you know, clicks. Do I find it annoying? Yes. Do I read it? Yes. <laughs> I believe there's a place for it. At, at, at the end of the day, a lot of it is actual well-researched good journalism. I mean, it's a small... The publication Bible, Bible of New York City um, and, well it, it's all over you know it's yeah. not just New York but I think the way that they attract people on social media through these sort of more salacious headlines are sort of stirring up trouble I think you know it's no secret that they've you know recently just come after compass for a lot of things and some of it when you actually know the information doesn't really make sense some of it is just gossipy stuff to get people's attention Again, I, I sort of, uh, I hate to say it, but I just accept that that's the way the world works. That's the way journalism works in that capacity. And you have to sort of live with it. That's right. Yeah. This is the, the world of clickbait. Yes. Yeah, the world of realism. That's right. Uh, as, as good of a job The Real Deal does, and they've done a phenomenal job, whether it's events or articles or history of New York or writing about certain developers, the backgrounds of fa landlord families in New York City. We can't find that stuff anywhere. So... They do a great job. For good reason. They <laughs> but they definitely have a, kind of a clickbaity trend, especially when it comes to writing about Compass. With your thoughts in a few words, Rob Rafkin. I think he's an incredible guy. You know, I met him almost 10 years ago by chance through my mentor, Gordon. We talked for 30 minutes and I was one of the first employees of Compass. I'm still licensed with Compass. Um, and while I'm not directly an agent anymore, um, I have a very large referral network of people that I like referring out across the country who want agents who do the things that I did, who need to be hooked up with stagers. Um, I think he has built an incredible company. Again, I've, I've been here for almost 10 years. I am just in constant awe of what he's done and the time that he devotes to people, like real, actual time. I don't know of very many people who have worked this hard, this consistently. And again, seeing what has been built from where this was almost 10 years ago to today, it's just, I think it's profound. Right, most tech founders may have probably cashed out by now. Yeah, I mean, he just, he loves what he does. He loves the people. I mean, it, he really is someone who walks the walk. Right. You know, I mean, I remember those early days where Again, this guy founded the, you know, he founded the company. He could be sitting back. Benice just had their second child. And he was in the office and out there, like, renting apartments, learning the tech, learning everything that was needed to do this. And I don't think there's a chance that we would be here today if it wasn't for that. Yeah, Someone who just is so dedicated. You said in that Spring Street office, I was like, right, who's this Rob guy? Like, what does he do? And, like, how does he, like, survive and operate? And 
And he did everything. What you said was he, he just plugs into a wall. Yeah. At night. <laughs> I'm still convinced he's like a rechargeable battery. But he charges him hours. in for three hours. He pops out and he's ready to go. He's ready to go. Uh, next, your thoughts on a few words. TikTok, Instagram. Twitter, Facebook, social media. I love Instagram. I, today is Valentine's Day, and I think Instagram is my val- – like I, I don't think I spend more time with or on anything Instagram. more than Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just mean I have such a, a thing for it. I'm not on TikTok. I just – I don't think I have enough bandwidth to now, a lot. you know, all these platforms. Sure, sure. I think the other part of it, too, is when you're running a business on them and you're also running a business and you have a family and you have real-life obligations, you know, the amount of messages and questions and things you have to respond to, it's just like, you know, I have three email accounts, direct messaging on Facebook, Instagram, emails – employees it's just it's exhausting so at some point i'd love to have someone handle it but you know i run the social for stage to sell home it's me on there doing it and communicating with everyone i think i'm good with just instagram you have quite a following on instagram so i don't see it to be beneficial for you to be just completely doing something new and brand new well time is better served probably you know i operating on that platform for now at least yeah i mean i think you know again though if we were to sit here and talk about how in from running a business, you know, where you're reliant heavily on one source for business or information transmitting, if you have all of your eggs in one basket, it it can be a problem further down the road. But at this point, since it's just me, I I just don't have the bandwidth for it. Last one, Urban Compass. Urban Compass. Oh, your thoughts on that. It manager, you a salary manager. Um, I get, yeah, we, I didn't, uh, you know, it was fun. It was just like they gave me a job. Every day it changed. Um, <laughs> no, I lo- you know, I love that. I, the to me, changed, the right? position changed. I was, I mean, the thing is, you know, those early days where things were just in such transition. And we're, listen, we were making it up as we went along. It's yeah. not like a secret. Yeah. To me, that what was really attractive. Like when I asked what the job was, you know, they just started rambling off a bunch of like random things. And I was like, this is so attractive to someone with attention deficit disorder. Like, <laughs> I am so into this. And that's, I honestly, you know, when someone says urban compass to me, it's like when someone says, you know, like elementary school and that heart, like, oh, it's such a good, you know, like milk and cookies kind of time. It was such an incredible experience. It taught me so much. I mean, it helped me when I think about how I sort of like, really started growing stage to sell, you know, the stage to sell home was really sort of like this marketing thing that I developed at City Habitats through Greg Young, um, who was an agent coach at the time. Rest in peace. May he rest in peace. But it was like a, a leaflet that I had. It was just a thing. It was like my marketing. It was my differentiator. You know, I was the, the guy that came in and fixed up your apartment and I had a plan to do it. And then, you know, as time went on, I had results. I don't think I'd be where I am today if I didn't have that time where, you know, you, you were just trying to get everything to work and you were working with everybody. I'm not really used to working with so many people. You know, I was used to working with a client. They have a goal. We need to meet the goal. But, you know, in Urban Compass, so many things were just like this, like being a part of this like think tank incubator. And it was just you know, you're working with product, then you're working with the neighborhood specialists. And, you know, then I'd be sitting here until 11 o'clock at night with like Lehman and David Snyder. I mean, those guys, like they work so hard and it it really, 
it just taught me a lot. And it taught me also to not have to quantify everything. Like, you know, I see a lot, even still to this day, like a lot, it's first one in the office, last one in the office. Like, you know, we get it. Um, when you worked with these guys, I mean, there were times where like, it was after midnight and people were still in the office, but yeah. no one needed to promote it. No one was looking for like a pat on the back or, you know, a, a like out of it. It was just, these are the things. Office. Yeah. This is just what needed to be done. And this is how you did it. And it taught me to be able to do that without looking for an immediate praise out of it without, yeah. you know, so I, to me, that was one of the best times in my life, professionally, best. yeah. And personally, I, I, it really, there were a lot of things from that period that ended with a lot of personal growth that I didn't have before. You know, it's gotta be a little rattling for you to be picked up as a broker who, or an agent for 10 years, and then moved into a management role or a staff role for like a year or two, and then you get jarred back into, oh, sorry, Jason, we have to move you back into another agent role. Uh, because we don't need your position anymore. That's, doesn't that kind of rattle? I mean, I'm sure it obviously worked out. But no, at the time, well, you're paraphrasing and you don't know. So um, <laughs> it wasn't really like that. And so, oh, no. So uh, it was more just a choice. And so I went back to being an agent. Gotcha. Um, choice. And uh, it, it wasn't jarring because everything we were doing was what agents do. You know, and it, the, the truth is, like, and I, I don't talk about this that much, but, you know, I had a nice career, but it's not as if I was this, like, top-listing dynamo mm -hmm. and then stopped being a top-listing dynamo and then tried to go back to it. You know, the, the accounts that I had pretty much all stayed with me. Um, the relationships I had somewhat stayed with me, but it was, uh, it was quite easy, and I learned so much out of it that it wasn't uh, any sort of transition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that makes sense. I, I thought from an outsider that you were, like, asked to be a staff and then a broker mm -hmm. and then a staff. As long as you had your business estate, as oh, long yeah. as your business didn't really, you know, pivot in a way where your model had to be completely re revamped because you were a manager for two years and then you'd have to come back to be an agent. And then that could have been... No, it was only a yeah. year, yeah. Um, but it wasn't like that, so it was okay, nice. Let's, mm -hmm. uh, let's pivot a little bit. Rapid yeah. fire questions pivot. on... You know, one or the other, please. Uh, give me your thoughts on one or the other. Why, in a couple sentences, Brooklyn or Manhattan? Oh, Brooklyn. I mean, Manhattan. I don't think I need any other sentences. Yeah, so you, you just closed on a house. I, I bought a, an apartment. I wish it was a house. Oh, I thought it was a, uh, it was a townhouse. Well, it's in a townhouse. In, in a townhouse. But it's not the whole townhouse. It's a it's a modest apartment in a townhouse. Brooklyn, all the way. I, I love it. I wish I moved there sooner. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Civilized. And before that, you were breathe. in Harlem? I've lived in Harlem. What? Uh, financial District. Yeah. Chelsea, yeah. obviously. The Lower East Side, East Village. Astoria. I mean, I've been... I grew up in outside of the city, but I've been here... I mean, you can't tell my age because of the Botox, but, you know, I've been here over 20 years. Yeah. So I've qu had quite a few addresses. Who's been in New York longer? You or Dan Morello? I don't know. I guess um, they're about the same age, I'm assuming. Probably. Maybe. <laughs> I guess we'll, Both you Both from know. the same... I won't tell, The but, same founding, yeah. uh, founding company of City Habitats and uh, yeah. the Heiberger uh, organization. Second question. Lantern House or the Cortland? Do you know I've never been in either? No way. Okay. No, well, I haven't. 
they they the lantern house has grown on me i mean i have to tell you i looks like a was walking crazy, past huh? it for years yeah. at, in the early stages <laughs> when it was still under construction and the covering was on all the windows and i was like this is fucking disgusting like <laughs> who did this and why like this is the, as a designer just, right it's a but very particular it's, but it, it's grown on me, and I, I like the street. I lived on that street for a long time when it oh, when Tenth Avenue. Well, but Tenth Avenue, and right. I, I, a lot of my apartments in Chelsea were in Tenth along Tenth Avenue pre High Line, so I have quite an affection for that area. Um, so that's why when seeing it go up, I was like, oh god, this is I gotta get out of here. Yeah. But now I'm I'm kind of into it. Yeah. Yeah. And the Cortland's what the old U-Haul on Twenty Third. That's right. 22nd, 23rd, yeah. 22nd, 23rd. The whole yeah. block. It's like the 15th Central Park West move downtown. Yeah. You know, All right, maybe, same, I'll, same maybe I'll check effect. it out. Maybe after this we'll... The Cortland is interesting. I mean, I'm sorry, the Lander House is interesting. It's like the Corinthian almost. You got this weird oval, very oval living rooms. Where you're almost limited to either a circular dining room or you have to get like a custom-fitted circle couch. Yeah. Is that, does that, I mean, if you had to stage a room like that, I mean, I guess you would love the I mean, challenge. I have a lot of circular furniture, <laughs> so I'm good. <laughs> I, you know, but when limits. it comes to that, the that I space. love, I am so into limits. Like, okay. they turn me on, they get me excited. Good. That, to me, professionally, is like a lot of these projects, you know, that you've mentioned, there were limitations. There were a lot of problems, and that's the fun part is like, why has something sat on the market for 666 days with two different people but not sold? And that's the like, to me, you know, these projects are like solving a math problem. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's not just like, oh, this would be pretty and like, oh, I'll just put this candle over here. I mean, it's like, I'm going in under the skin a lot of the times. Okay. And that's why, you know, again, those results, like, those are real numbers, right? Like, anyone can go look that up and see. Oh, that apartment was the, like I've pulled up now the two listings. That's six hundred and sixty-six days, two different people, but this one closed for more than the last house. Right. It's not always about the price. Yeah. Uh, next, we'll, we'll get we'll go back into that again. Yeah. Uh, rapid fire questions, part two. Mm. Uh, big and brown Ooh. or sleek and white. Oh, big and brown. And you know what we're talking about. I don't, but big and brown. <laughs> I don't need to. You're know. a fan of the big and brown, huh? Oh yeah. I'm not so much. I think big and brown is out. Some people like it really big and really brown. Mm. You know what I'm talking about, Danielle? Furniture. That's right. Yeah. I don't, I, I, Wait, we're talking about furniture? Yeah. <laughs> oh. We're talking about furniture from day one. Oh, you know, uh, I kinda, I'm sorry. I got very confused and a little hot. Brown, hot under that collar. I don't have a collar, but. <laughs> <laughs> big and brown is, I think, out. As a, as a, it as depends. A what, well, it depends what we're talking about, exactly, right? Yeah, like, yeah. is it in a space where that makes sense and where the scale is there? And so, you know, every space, like every person, you know, is different. You have to sort of like really think about that. Some spaces are not sleek. Some people are not sleek. Sure. Right. So sometimes you design a space that's like a little too sleek. It doesn't always connect with the people looking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. So this kind of leads to our next question. Pre-war or post-war? Oh, pre-war. All day. All day. With exposed brick. Oh, talk to me. Exposed beams. Oh. Yeah, okay. Keep going. Single pane, landmark windows. Oh. That leak and are noisy. Oh, the best. The best. The best. Okay, all right. I mean, I love my, like, I, I love the details. I love the character. Now, I will say, though, from doing this professionally, like, 
because I'm in such a wide cross section. As much as I love pre-war old, I do, there's some projects where they're new, but you know, and while I guess on paper they're sleek, they're about construction, right? They're yeah. about material choice. That's the architect is a nut for functionality. Walker Tower and yeah. Portland. Um, those, are, those are two that come to mind. And so functionality. those spaces I really enjoy. And I think probably as I, got, as I get older, as much as I fight it, um, I will eventually one day probably want to live in something like that for mm. a period of time. And I think, you know, again, this, in this work, that started in brokerage and now is, is you know, this like add-on to brokerage. Um, people choose different spaces at different points and times in their lives. So while someone may say, I want this, they may end up here because, you know, through this like discovery process, they realize like, oh, I actually need these amenities. Oh, I'm not, I haven't slept well because I have leaky windows and loud and this and Drafty that. And, air and yeah, and you know what? I actually like the more I think about it and that's the stuff I love you know, from brokerage that I take into my work now. Mm -hmm. Okay. And a final rapid fire question. I personally have an affinity to one of these companies just because I had, I had used the stager for my condo originally, um, and they used all CB2 material. Do you have an, do you have a, if you had to pick one vendor that you were going to stage with, would it be CB2, Crit and Barrel, West Elm? Uh, I work with CB2 a lot. Yeah. Like quite a bit. Okay. They feature why, my work. And, and so do you personally like them a little bit? Oh, yeah. They're design, design forward. Very. Uh, very design forward. Uh, great material selection. They understand design. They partner with some really incredible young designers and incredibly well-known, well-respected um, industrial designers and create these sort of like iconic pieces uh there's one in particular like um they work with this designer caleb zipper a lot and he came up with this chair it's called the stature chair and i probably own like 20 of them um it works incredibly well as like a beautiful um statuesque dining chair uh in a lot of these tight manhattan spaces it makes a great side chair and it has an incredible profile it looks really good. It feels good. I use one as my desk chair. This is one of these. That's the stature. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll put this. Yeah. In. So this is cool looking. It's like a almost like, like a velvety chair that you find at. Uh, well, that's tea, now that's Crate and Barrel. I don't know if that's a Caleb. Uh -oh. It's a it's a sister. That's that's the parent company. That's mom that and dad. You're right. I don't know if that's but the ones to the CB2. yeah. Oh, this there one you go. But it's very similar. Very yeah. similar. Yeah, this is very similar. Okay, um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I really like CB2's design. Yeah, so I, I work a lot with them. They feature me a lot. I used to do events at the stores. Right. Okay. Um, okay. I think the price points really make sense, mm -hmm. yep. and there's a great level of quality. Um, so out of all sort of like the mass market furniture that's out there, that is my go-to. And they seem to be reasonably priced. I mean, you could get one chair for I, I see on the website three hundred sixty-four bucks. Yeah, I you know again, it's everyone has a different. Two people could look at that and say, "Wow, that's really affordable," and someone else could say, "Oh my god, that's so expensive." Um, furniture, I think, a kind of middle of the road pricing. I think. Right? Yeah, I mean that's that's my impression of it for something yeah. that's so design forward. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, we're talking about the work that we do and what things cost. Not everybody understands why things cost a certain amount, and right. that's really important. And you know, in my work, when I get pushback or someone says like, "Oh, 
you know, I have two proposals, you know, this one, they're 20% less expensive than you. Can you come down in your price? And so I always say, well, who's your proposal from? They tell me. And then I can very quickly either say, you know, number one, well, I'm familiar with their work and they use very cheap materials. And if you're looking to fill your home with cheap materials because you believe that that's going to help increase the value of your home to people, then you should go with them. There's a reason ours is different. There are sometimes where someone might just be more established, have a longer run business. Maybe they don't have an employees, but they have a salary and that's why their cost is a little bit less expensive. Um, or sometimes I don't know who they're talking about and I say, please send me three examples of their work so mm -hmm. I can make an assessment mm -hmm. as to why theirs is less expensive than mine. Mm -hmm. And then I can go from there. Got it. So, but for reference, like you use mostly CB2? No, not mostly, but I use a but lot. A lot. Okay. And I, if the question of out of those retailers, which is your favorite, that would be mine. Okay. But I really, you know, the important part of having this business and having the ability to one day do uh, a former, uh, you know, Siemens house in Red Hook, and mm -hmm. the next day go to Gramercy Park, where your a, a key to the park comes yeah. with the apartment, yeah. uh, a classic six on the Upper West Side, and then go out to. Um, Greenpoint and have them all look as if they belong in those neighborhoods and sell to the people who live there with those incomes at that age, with those type of jobs, whatever it is, you have to have a really wide cross-section of inventory. And if you know, you're only sticking with one source, it's always going to look like a catalog. Right. Um, but it's also typically going to veer to one. So the art of this is really, you know, having pieces from a wide cross-section, collecting things, importing things, um, getting things at auction so that your things l don't look like everyone else's. This just goes back to what you said earlier. You know, it's not just about big and brown or light and white. You have to kind of tailor it to that personality. I'm waiting for a third alliteration <laughs> there. Come on. Uh, Se sexy and silver. Sexy and silver, yeah. Or, yeah. I don't know, uh, skinny and light. Skinny and mini. Skinny yeah. and mini, yeah. yeah. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah. It just depends on the personality, <laughs> right? Danielle, would you like to All hop right. on and sure. go into yeah, some Yeah, put the down meat. your LaCroix and <laughs> ask a question. Meat of the questions. All right. We'll dive in more to your, oh, your deep business di now. Deep diving. Let's go. Um, did you have any interior design training, or how did you get started in this field? Uh, my only design training is like, you know, when I was little... And my friends would like take their dad's Playboys like I used to take my mom's Martha Stewart livings. Um, <laughs> that is my design training. I didn't go to school for it. My career started in, you know, in um, PR and marketing and then segued into real estate. But I have no design training. You went to college in what, Northeastern? Yeah. And what did you study? Um, uh, journalism. Okay. Oh, wow. Vastly I, I, I could have worked at the real deal. Um, <laughs> Um, but that was my path. Design is the thing that I love. I've, ever since I was a kid, I was always redecorating my room, any room in the house. I'd come home after like summer camp and school and like reorganize a pantry. If I was at someone's house, like I'd be in the kitchen with their mother, mm -hmm. you know, like re redecorating. Um, and so within brokerage, like that's the thing that I love. There was a lot of stuff within real estate brokerage that I did not love. Um, but I, you know, I'd walk into a mess of an apartment or I'd be on a pitch where I'm the third person being interviewed for the job. And I used to say, like, let me show you my perspective of your apartment. Like, let me show you why this hasn't 
worked. Like if you've listed with these people at the talk, that's so rude typing while I'm talking. You do this to all your guests? All of them. Oh. Notes. I, I don't know if you're going to make it to the 100th show you're doing that. <laughs> this is all about the notes. That is unbelievable. I hope you get this on camera. Now Danielle's, Danielle's in charge right now. Oh, you don't have a break. I'm not on the um, in charge so that was the thing. I mean, that, you know, again, I started to realize and I started to realize it here a lot. Like I started working with and being around so many amazing agents at Compass, right? Like at City Habitats, you know, there was a nice handful and it was early on in my career, but it wasn't exactly the most like illustrious place to be. But then, you know, in the early days of Compass, when I was just so enmeshed with everyone, you're around these agents who are just incredible and talented and connected. And I was like, I don't know if I'm one of these people, but the thing that I was, like I could go into a space and just turn it around. So it started as a passion and now you're oh, yeah. able to turn it into Yeah, I turned it into my business. How did, I mean, how did you make that transition? You know, it was during the pandemic where like the world was falling apart and we weren't really doing anything. And I was helping a couple people with projects um, whose clients had left the city and weren't coming back and like when these people left and went to like their hamptons house or a house in connecticut like it was everything from like the dry cleanings on the door to like there's food in the sink and the dishes and you know you have to remember we were in a period where like if you went to go for a walk you people were wearing gloves you yeah. know like it was really so i started doing that and i also was dealing with one of the most difficult, crazy sellers I have ever had who was out of her mind and was going to make a killing on an apartment but would not take a deal. But every day would call me crying that she was losing so much. Like to the point where like at the time, my four-year-old daughter was like, why is this woman always calling and crying? Like she asked, she's like, who is that person crying? Like, why? And it was just like, this woman was making $900,000 on her one-bedroom <laughs> apartment, but it was like, lose it. And I was just like, oh my God, I don't like, I don't know if I could do this anymore. Yeah. Like if things are this fragile, but yet I was like hopping on my bike and going to this house in Carnegie Hill that a family had owned for 40 years and had pre-pandemic had already left. And I was working on it. I just found, I was like, I'm so happy just being here. And then this person would call me, you know, with this like listing. And I was just like, fuck, I can't do this. <laughs> so I kind of just decided, you know what? It was like pre-pandemic was like half and half. And then it started veering a little bit more to the staging because it was just, I was frankly much better at it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore, but I want to continue to help people. And that's why you know, through Instagram and everything else, I have a lot of people who come to me from other parts of the country and want to know, an, you know, can you introduce me to an agent in LA? I need someone who's like you in Denver. And this way, like I'm able to do everything and I can just focus on the design. And, you know, I still feel like I'm an agent because I work with the agents from that perspective. Yeah. I know their clients, mm -hmm. I know their mindset, I know what they're going through. I know what the agent needs me for. Like there's, there's a, a lot of agents that I work with where we almost don't even speak anymore because it's so seamless. We just sort of know, like, the yeah. keys are here, this, and it just goes. So it really sort of during the pandemic, I just made some some choices, you know? It was like you, you had this time finally to evaluate your life and see what makes you happy and what doesn't. You kind of touched on this a little earlier about how you need different inventory based on where the apartment you're staging is located in. But what makes you decide to stage an apartment with more of a modern look versus a traditional feel? Is it just the neighborhood or 
how the apartment looks or the potential buyer that might buy this it, place? It's basically, it's all of those things. It's location, it's price point, it's end user, it's the architecture. But I also will look at closed sales and what's on market. And I try and get a sense, like, are things not selling because they all look a certain mm -hmm. way? And then maybe I go in that direction. A lot of it's psychology. And again, it it's from such a long period of brokerage. Like when you're, when you spend almost 20 years taking buyers out, like you understand the preferences, you understand the personality. But then the other side of that equation is I was also the listing agent. So when you're there at all these open houses and people are telling you, oh, I wish it was this, I wish it was that, you start to understand the nuances and differences between the buyers in different locations and what their use is gonna be. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's sort of how I approach it. And I try to make everything like the most aspirational version of what it can be. Like there's a studio I did uh, on West 89th Street for Lori Gilmore last year. That was also one of our biggest successes. It was an inexpensive apartment. It was $350,000. And people often say, like, she called, like, will you even do this? And I was like, of course, I'll do anything for you. Like, and so that apartment sold for $90,000 over its ask. And it was a ground floor apartment. Oof. Like, it was cute, but it was I a tough I saw your photo for that one. Yeah, and so. Yeah. Tough I was too. wondering how a ground floor went it was, that Well, so what, the, one of the biggest issues is when you walked in, you had this sort of, like, somewhat beautiful bay window. But because it's the ground floor, it's and because of this location on the Upper West Side, you have this like high cement sort of stoop around it. So your your view is essentially, and this is really like the only location for the bed, it's all the trash compactors. And then the cement sort of exterior wall before you get to the sidewalk, because it's actually a little bit below ground. Yeah. So it was a very simple fix. like. I put cafe curtains up, right? And so cafe curtains are typically like 30 inches. The bar sits in the middle of the window. So you got all of the light and you could see the street mm. and the trees, this is half. but you didn't see any of the garbage. And then I just sort of thought of it like the, the renovation had some somewhat feminine touches to it, right? And they also, one of the things that were very smart was, and again, typically in a studio apartment like this, there's usually one closet or no closets there was an entire wall of built-in closets. And it was a very logical sort of thing. Like, this is gonna be a young woman's apartment, right? Like, I can yeah. say that. I did this version of what I imagined, like a 20-something girl who has saved her money, right? And has worked really hard to buy this. Like, what would be the ultimate fantasy apartment? Like, if she was sitting there online on Street Easy or Zillow or Compass or whatever it is, and looking at all these thumbnails of what typically yeah. are $350,000 apartments, they usually look like shit, right? Like, this one would blow her mind. Like, she would just think, like, this can't be real. I want to go see it. And that's sort of what happened. You know, and that's, it's interesting because people often say, like, is staging worth it on a low-end apartment? And I think it's, like, the smartest thing you could do for it because... You know, typically when I've done projects in areas that don't normally stage, like I did a house in, in Ocean Hill a couple of years ago, and I went and saw the comp sets and they were terrifying. <laughs> I mean, it was just like the most disgusting, heinous stuff I've ever seen in my life. Like I was scared. Like I, like we didn't really use hand sanitizer back then, but like <laughs> you wanted to go home and take a bath in hand sanitizer after touring the comps. And so I did this house and it sold in like a week and everything else was on the market for a year. You know, this is like... 
a different time before things were super, super hot. But there was stuff on the market for over a year. You know, the buyers, you're going to see everything. If you're looking in a certain neighborhood and it's a Sunday, everything that's available, you know, between 1 million and like one five probably would be its comp set. Mm -hmm. If you saw those 10 or 15 things and you think you need a tetanus shot after all, like every one of them, and then you walk into this one house that every detail is done, you're like, this is it, right? Like they're looking for a place to buy. It, it's, it's common sense. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how I approach it is like, what would make it so that someone has committed to this apartment before they've even stepped through the door? Mm -hmm. Go back to West 89th Street, and I'm gonna put this up again on, on, the, on like the highlight reels so people can see it. Did the buyer end up, you know, what was, you said it was gonna be the single professional female. Well, what was the buyer? Could you, so you were spot on. Yeah. That was, was the singles, yep. 20s, female yep. buyer that saw that her ultimate luxury was having nice closets. And yep. Did the seller do any work to this apartment as far as kitchen, bathroom? It was updated. It was nice. I mean, it, it was, was updated, a, but it was it not was, like a gut. gut. Uh, yeah, it was gutted at some point okay. recently, like yeah. within the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, oh, 10. So it's not like a mint over-the-top type renovation. But here's the thing. Like, you clean something up enough mm -hmm. and you polish it up with that, it doesn't need to be mint, mm -hmm. right? Like, it was really nice. But it was obviously, it, was, it skewed feminine, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, it, it had a certain thing and you have to work with that. So, to me, that renovation for someone looking at that price point was great. Don't you have a little bit of a fear of or risk? Don't you feel risk going into a project like this and then just automatically saying this is a feminine space. Well, I mean, You're really here's the thing. You're cutting out half the, half the market. I don't, right. do you, let me tell you. It's hard so, for me to say based on this photo right. that this is a feminine space. So, But that's sort it's of not, the trick. It's not like the color is all pink and right. whatever. But that's right. sort of, there's a, so there's a difference, right, between like playing in very heavily like a women like pink, right? Like that's a, but when you get down to the minutia of the books, the, like the Bill Cunningham, the fashion books, like it's going to connect probably mm. with a young woman, but it's not meant to alienate anyone. And mm -hmm. that's why... It does feel sort of neutral, but it feels it's soft. The materials are good. The artwork is significant in all areas. It turned like there's a little office nook. There's a little dining nook that like you can imagine sitting there with a cup of tea in the morning. Mm. So you can appeal to certain people without sort of, uh, I don't know how else to say this, but like doing blackface, mm. right? Like I think that's what you're talking about right. is... It's not alienating completely. Right, like it's not like I painted the walls pink and put like a poodle in the corner, right. you know? <laughs> have like a bunch of flowers. Yeah, and, and said like, here's Carrie Bradshaw. Yeah. But, you know, again, the, the renovation and some of the details and the, the mill work on the fireplace, like it, it's going to definitely connect a little bit more to a woman, but I don't think that's going to alienate. If you brought a male buyer there... It's not going to alienate the male buyer. Right. right. So again, this is today. Now, here's the thing, though. Yeah. And what I, this is the one I have found. These are from my old days of being an agent, especially a young, like a first time buyer. If it is a guy, they almost always bring a woman for their opinion. Mm. And that's when, like, if it hasn't connected for them, the woman's in love. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, just don't let anyone on Fair Housing hear this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Danielle, you, do you have another? Yeah, do you ever receive any pushback from the seller or the listing broker? 
or so, do you have full creative control? And is this pushback in terms of pricing? What do you think? Are you, are you, let's, are you talking creative about well, style? Well, creative, creative control over the design yeah. work. Like, like listing like something like that where you're leading feminine or, um, I mean, that's more specific, but just... You know, I, I typically do, and a lot of the agents I work with, like we try and explain it to the client. I would say nine out of 10 people have no interest in what, they're just like, go get the job done. They I want to know it's great. Yeah. It's not that they don't care. I they think it's you. just, again, you know, I'm, I'm showing someone before I've taken a job, a, a lookbooks that have, one of them's 115 pages of example after example after example, mm -hmm. neighborhood after neighborhood. Like, it's not like it's one thing regurgitated and it goes so far back. And then there's all these other examples. I think people know that they're hiring a professional and they have to trust the process. So, but, and it, I often, here and there, I say to someone who's not familiar with this, like, listen, there's a little bit of the unknown, like you have no idea who I am, but here's all of my you know, background and press and, and things. And most people, after you chat about it for a few minutes, get really they comfortable. Could, yeah. Now, I did just have probably the worst... <laughs> I, and I, I only know this fact because I, it, I would say I've probably done close to a thousand spaces wow. at this point, if not, maybe a little bit more. Um, and I've had three problems, three, three sellers who were really, and two who were just v verbally abusive and awful and hated it and did not hold back. Um, and so one of them had just happened. The other one, what was interesting the agent had sent them pictures of the house that I was doing while I was working in it. And we were actually working early because the house was empty. This was in the winter. They wanted to be on spring, on market in spring. So I said, great, let me just go in and start ahead Take of time. Look. And you could start your clock whenever you want. Don't worry about it. Like it was a big house and it was a special house and it's nice to have time. And so the seller sent me this email, like an, a very long of everything he hated. But what's odd is the email came in at like three o'clock in the morning, which yeah. is always a, like, there's a little bit of a... Might have been a different country. No, 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 I'm sorry. I, I'm fa I know where he was. I'm, I'm factoring in the time <laughs> difference and letting you know. It's, it's <laughs> he sent me such a horrific, like, and so I said, like, one, let me finish. You know, let me, and so he pointed out a few things and I, like, you know, it's easy because we were, I was working and bringing to just appease those few things. Like, oh, I changed out this rug and did that. Now let me, sure. so what's interesting about this. So then I guess the agent went back when I was finished and sent video and pictures and he calmed down because he saw it complete. Mm. And so the house, now this was um, just after lockdown, the market was not strong. It was, and it was the it was like dead. winter heading into spring. Oh yeah, it was the worst winter, yeah. So the house, if I remember correctly, was listed around four or five. And the discussions that we had as a team where they were hoping, hoping that it would sell around four million to four two. And the reason why I said earlier, I told them they could take as much time as they want, we'd start the clock. He was so concerned that they would go past the 90 day agreement because the market was so bad that, that he had said like, please don't start. And I had said, no, 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 you, I'm gonna start early for me. You can start the clock on this date. There's no, don't worry about it. The house went from listed to sold in six days. Mm. The, the buyer came in, I think there were like 15 offers and then the, the agent said that we're not taking any more offers. The buyer came in on like a Thursday. The inspector was there on a Friday. Her private bank wired the funds over the weekend. And like the, we, this guy, the, the phone calls went from like, what did you do in my house to 
how quickly can we get this stuff out so she can close? I met her. She also wrote like a, like she wanted to buy everything in the house. Other people who made offers said like, I, I, you know, I saw the picture and like, this is the house we walked through and we couldn't get over this and that. And like, this is how I want to live. And he wrote me the night. He's like, you've changed my understanding of what design is, you know, and I feel embarrassed because I just, he had sent me a picture of what he wanted the house to look like. And I wrote him, I said, this is like a $20 million like case study house in like Napa Valley. Like this isn't, it's not this. This isn't, yeah. we, we don't have those, we don't have that time, we don't have that budget, we don't have this architecture, we don't have these sprawling, like, it's like a 22 foot wide house. Like this isn't. Um, it's still big in New York City. Wait, centers, so, but it's not so the house that. sold that fast, but it, it sold for a half a million dollars over ask. And so, you know, that sort of dealt with one and this other one, you know, every once in a blue moon, you get someone who doesn't understand that, what they see, if they don't like it, I'm not designing it for them. And at the end of the day, if someone feels this isn't what luxury is or this isn't nice, I kind of tell someone at this point, this is what you think is luxury. If you open an architectural digest or a world of interiors, you will see everything from like chintz to Chagorban, right? And the same issue page after page mm -hmm. from like, you know, this frilly English countryside house to a cement loft in, you know, downtown Los Angeles. Like, design runs the gamut. And I'm not in a business to make things not look good, but this may not connect with you. And it was funny, this, this, this one that happened recently, the guy said, uh, you know, I had a, a, all my tenants over the years had garbage like this, and the last one who died in the apartment, um, I had to pay to throw her stuff to be put in a dumpster because I wouldn't allow anyone to see the apartment until it was at. And I said, wow, well, what's really interesting is that you've just shared with me that all the people coming to this building in the last like eight to 10 year period have a certain aesthetic. And without knowing that, I've created something that speaks to the people who are seeking out and paying a premium to live in this building. Now you bought this apartment 23 years ago and it's not your style, which is fine, but I think that's really pretty fascinating. Yeah. He, he yeah. didn't really find that really fascinating, but. The customer doesn't <laughs> want to be wrong. Yeah, ever. that's fine. That's yeah. all right, listen. They don't want to be called One out. One asshole, you know, I can deal with that. Out of a thousand is, is not bad. It's not bad. It's not bad. Well, um, what was one of the, one of your favorite projects that you've ever worked on? Oh my God, I like I need categories, like favorite. Townhouse, favorite this decade, favorite... Favorite uh, townhouse we'll go with. I just did a townhouse apartment for Leonard's team at 450 West 23rd Street. Oh. Now, this apartment had been on the, uh, off the market, I would say probably at least three or four times over the last over f maybe five, seven years. And it's in one of the Fitzroy townhouses on that stretch of 23rd Street. Yeah. yeah. That's like being in Paris. It's just, it's so magical. And, but when you look at the previous versions of it, the house didn't really sing and it didn't really connect. And that, so that's the parlor. And it's, it's just this really grand space with a lot of detail. The architect did one of the most beautiful custom jobs I'd ever seen. And that's got to be at least 10 years old and doesn't feel dated. It feels brand new. Now, one of the things with this apartment is 
because it's the, the parlor and it's a triplex. The other half of the apartment is below ground, the other two floors. Mm. And so I, I went room by room, area by area, like every detail to make sure that the feeling that you felt in that parlor, that grand space with the 16-foot ceiling and the, the, like the braided twists, uh, moldings, like it's exuberant. It's exciting. I tried to do everything I could to carry that through the rest of the apartment, the other two floors. So like the laundry room was this back interior room that typically looks and feels and smells like a laundry room. Now, I went in, I wallpapered it, I put art in, and it became a selling feature. Whereas before, when you see the before pictures, like it's just an institutional clinical room. There's an extra living room, and I turned it into a game room with like a marble ping pong table so that if people were on showings and they had kids, it's a lot of apartment, they could play a game and hang out in the game room, right? And there's a fireplace right by that. It's off by the garden. Like I wanted people to really enjoy the house and enjoy the space as opposed to just walking through it and making a quick decision. And when you do a lot of that, I find that when I talk with the agents I work with, the amount of time, and this is you know something I learned at brokerage, the more time someone spends in a property, the better a chance you have of them making an offer on it or coming back. And that's what was happening here. And that's what happens at a lot of the properties is that, and again, it's especially if it's the same agent on a property once it's been, you know, it came on market and didn't transact and then it's staged. When people start spending twice as long in a space, you have a better opportunity. Way better. Yeah. Way and better. that, so that was one of my favorites because I knew the project. I'd been in it before when it was for sale. I just, I walked in the door and just was instantly in love with it. And I, it was one that was nice. I had a little bit of time in between when the tenants were moving out and the install to just really be creative. You know, that's mm-hmm. everybody wants everything done like in five seconds. And a lot of these things, like we're in and out in a day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's no planning time, but I have the relationship with a lot of agents where I can say like, I wanna take a couple days and like wrap my head around the space and like really design it and plan it. And again, if you've, if you've been the agent on a listing that hasn't sold four or five times, you want someone to take three yeah. days um, to figure out what's Minimum. gonna make it sell. Definitely, absolutely. Did you put the wall wallpaper up yourself? I mean, I have someone who puts you, it up. Yeah, you, I don't. Yeah. Do you do a lot of the work as far as hanging the everything? Do oh you, yeah. Do it the art the artwork is my favorite thing to do. You hang the artwork. Oh yeah, I love that's part of the the way things look. They do is like the placement of the art. You know, there's it's not like it's a template, right? Mm-hmm. Like no. you go you start with an idea, and sometimes it doesn't work in the space. Sometimes the light's not right. Sometimes things clash when you're in the space that you've mapped out in the warehouse. And so um, the, the art is my favorite arranging stuff, but I love actually moving the furniture. So it like, keeps me you fit. Carry yeah. the, you carry like, the big I mean, we have and... movers, but I go, I go in all the time for mm-hmm. the big stuff. Sure. They try to get me to not, but I love moving it. Like I, I love the process of this. And again, it like the bulk, the bulk of the space we were done in like a day and a half, and then I took a, like another couple days to just refine it and mm-hmm. and figure it out. What are some of your tips for sellers who want to present their home with a little bit better light, uh, with little to no budget? Yeah, I think the most important thing is to come at it from the perspective of a buyer, 
right? And so I think in order to do that, you have to do a little bit of role play. You need to go out and look at a couple of other listings. Like mm -hmm. I always in this process tell people like, same thing with brokerage, like go look at your comps and what are they like? What is the experience like? And then walk into your apartment, but walk into it like you're being shown the way you were shown those. And then some of the things start to become much easier in terms of decluttering, changing out the lighting. I think the biggest bang for buck you can ever get for the most part is repainting a space. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it doesn't need to, but you know, especially if you have an active family or pets, like it needs to be repainted. Um, repainting, changing out the lights, and just like paring down as if your life depends on it, right? And you know, at the end of the day, I often explain to people like you're trying to move, right? Like at some <laughs> point, you're gonna have to pack all of this up and move it. Now. If you start now with like, let's say you have a walk-in closet, but it's so stuffed that you can't walk through it, right? Or you have a lot of closets, but you open them up and stuff falls down. Like as an agent, you don't want that happening on showings because then the, associa the association is this, uh, this home doesn't have enough storage, yeah. right? Now, if you say to a seller, listen, like we have four weeks before we're coming to market, empty out that closet because you need to get rid of 50% of it. <laughs> Then it gives them the time to figure out like, oh, I don't use half, like why would you pay to move something to a new space, unpack it, just to keep something you have not used just and will not use and then eventually have to get rid of it. Like just do it all now and mm -hmm. or donate it and take a tax write off. Very true. All right, one final question from me. Okay. You've now become a successful entrepreneur twice. How was creating your staging business different from your real estate business? Were there any similarities? Um, I mean, I think everything is similar because one came from, you know, the staging came from the real estate business. So a lot of what I've learned and a lot of how I operate is just based off of all those years of brokerage. You know, the if you really want to build something, you want it to be something you care deeply about, that you love, that like, I mean, I'm excited about this all the time. Like I have a photo shoot on a Sunday afternoon that I'm excited for, as opposed to like, if you told me I had to go host an open house on a Sunday afternoon, I would rather, womp, womp. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like I, I would rather like hang myself. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to go show enough time? No. Oh, oh my God, no, <laughs> no, please <laughs> just, just make it stop. No, I could have, and here's the sink, you know, like yeah. I think they got it. I mean, listen, I loved some of that. It was fun, but it, it just, it, to me, it didn't connect. Now, I know agents who love to show, who are made like- Who are amazing as amazing, Like they're elect, like I, I understand why some people buy these apartments. They're just like, wow, you're so dynamic. That was yeah. but they incredible. Suck at, they suck at the desk, but they're really uh, Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to <laughs> shame anyone. You know, so I, I mean, like I just live for this. Like I, if we have like two days where we're not installing, like I lose my mind a little bit. When you're not installing, what are you doing? Uh, I mean, I'm usually working on my business, yeah. you know, I'm in the, or uh, tightening up in the warehouse or breaking down a space, checking in with clients. But I try to like really focus on the growth of the business. Do you have a truck in a warehouse? How does that work? We have an outside mover that I work with five days a week. Okay. And some, I have t now two warehouses and you in Brooklyn. Warehouse. Where are they in Manhattan? Brooklyn, yeah. Or Brooklyn? Yeah. What do, what do you keep, just you just keep all of your furniture in there and you just, Everything. Everything. <laughs> I mean, it's like that's in it's incredible. Yeah, there's probably like be. eighty couches. Like, oh my gosh. Geez. Yeah, that's I a mean, lot. It's a constant rotating thing. I mean, I was, you know, speaking to another agent that did her own staging, and she would just kind of, it's, to me, it was amazing. Also, like, rotate them in and out between her vacancy, vacant units. I mean, that's yeah. 
That's an art form all in itself. That's also an art form in itself. You have a whole storage, Mm -hmm. two of them, with 80 couches, and you're constantly moving them Every day. Yep. All over. I mean, that's... Five days a week. That's... Tell me about this, your pricing plan. How does that work? Some of these sellers are making $280,000 over asking price, as an example, at 44 Lisbon Art. Danny Davis had that listing. How did your pricing work? Because their sellers are clearly killing it. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. We have a pricing guideline and basically things start at a certain price point. Most of them fall within the averages. Some things, you know, there is a big, every once in a while, uh, you know, we have a pricing sheet, two bedrooms start at 15,000 and uh, someone will say, well, I have a, you know, a 2,000 square foot, five and a half million dollar, you know, can I get the $15,000? And I say, no, you can't because that's a typical, you know, resale of between like 900 and 1400 square feet. And that's typically below like 2 million. Like if you're at four or 5 million, you're on Park Avenue, you're Mm -hmm. double the amount of square footage. Like we're talking about a whole other inventory system. And sometimes I get people that say, but that's what I, I don't want to spend more than that. I tell them, go, there's a zillion people who will take your money and we'll just put a bunch of crap in there. But like, I'm not interested in taking on your project and not having it transact. Could you tell me the approximate, yeah. you don't have to give me the exact figures, but for this unit, particularly at 44 Lisbonard, how much was the gross price on the staging? I think that would have job? been between 15 and 20,000. Really? 15 and 20,000? Yeah, for... $280,000 over asking. Yep. Yeah, and that was like a three and a half million dollar apartment. Yeah, that's pretty phenomenal. I mean, I also found this one interesting too, Greg Meyer. Yeah, that was a good one. Greg Meyer is probably one of your favorite. uh, We have a good. um, You you and Greg are. are We do a lot together. Yeah, yeah. And Greg is someone through time. Like he, he also, you know, trusts me with the design and lets me. It's funny the the picture that you're looking at in particular. He, um, you know, he lives around the corner and I'm a few more blocks away and he had gone into the apartment when the painters were there painting and I typically go very neutral. And so he's never seen that paint color at all. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun kid's room in Brooklyn, right? And I wanted everything to really like pop. And that's why that is in this email of all of our greatest hits of last year, that is the only child's room. Everything else is typically the living room Mm because that's the best shot. But to me, this was my favorite room in the space. And I think any family that's looking, you know, while it is a kid's room, it's a full functioning bedroom with a queen bed. So even if they don't have a kid or empty nesters, you see, oh, wait a second. This is an adult sized bedroom. Yeah. But it was targeted to kids. But so anyhow, he called me, he sends me or he like put me on FaceTime. He's like, um. I think there's a mistake. Is this your color? Do you know about this? And I was like, yeah, that, uh, I was like, that's, that's what that's I picked. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he was like, uh, was sweating a little he, bit. he kind of freaked out. Yeah. Okay. But then he saw it finished and he's like, okay. And, and this one went 43 grand over asking, but yep. I, I'm assuming what is a two bedroom? Two bedroom. Yeah. So it's $15,000. Yep. And, and still, you know, you're, you're still netting, you know, $20,000 about with, with that investment of, of, uh, 15,000. And you're saving time because they went in the contract in just 20 days. Correct. So that's, I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. That's a cool case study. I also liked some of these other examples are perhaps not as extreme. Like like this one, like seventy six thousand dollars. Actually, this is probably extreme on, on a on a price point of under nine hundred thousand. Well, what makes but, it extreme? If we were to sit here, right? If this was like, let's talk about challenging listings. This is probably mm-hmm. challenging. It's a pre-war. Right. So it's apartment six. Yeah. With window AC units. And so that is so that is ground floor, ground rear, floor too, oh, okay. rear facing. Apartment six doesn't even seem like a ground floor. All okay. interior. Yeah, lot line all the way. So the artwork 
is a lot more colorful in that one. And so yeah. like all the, but you can't see the office shot from there, but it's super colorful. Um, so the fact that this sold $75,000 over ask and went into contract in under a month, while it may not be extreme as half a million dollars. Yeah, sure. and, or, yeah this one's not as know. extreme, but from the relative but price point standpoint. That is the type of apartment that would typically sit on market for almost year a year plus. and go price drop after price drop. Yeah. And then, you know, it's so low, and this is something that we haven't talked about, but sometimes people drop prices so low that they go into contract and then the co-op board rejects, rejects the sale. It happens all the time. And so sometimes when someone says like, what is the point of spending, you know, 10,000 on this if I'm only gonna make, or sometimes I tell someone, I don't know if you're gonna make 100,000, but I know that you're actually gonna sell this year and you're gonna sell for close to your ask, right? Like sometimes there are some projects that are so dime a dozen, right? That are so unspectacular that you know, when you look at what the comps are and when you look at where it should really be priced for where it is, it often has the ability to sell for so much less because there's nothing that's grabbed. But when you do it, then you end up sort of like guaranteeing with this insurance policy that it will transact close will to transact. ask. Mm -hmm. And how much was this station cost? I mean, that's just a one bedroom. That was like 10,000. 10,000. So the yeah. seller netted over $66,000 yep. within the initial investment. And, was, and that peace of mind within 30 days. Yeah, that's, and that's really the phenomenal. That's an intangible, right? Like people do, people often say, well, how much more, how much more? But I'm always like, you know, think, let's look at some of the comps that are on the market for where you are right now. 400 days on market, 182 mm -hmm. days. Like, I want you to think about that. Like, think if we're 182 days out from now and you're still unsold, like where are you mentally right. gonna be? Plus right. your monthly maintenance costs. Plus your, the co-op boy that so would likely- So I always sort of like, again, I know people always want like, well, tell me how much but I often really focus on that stuff because sometimes too, when you're like, you're out of state, maybe you're in the middle of a divorce or someone died, like something like this hanging over your head and unknown, it's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, if it's, it's, it, it will be a no brainer if it's an estate, as long as the state carrier or the executor is able to carry those initial costs that they have to pay you. We have a lot of issues with that too, is that in an estate sale, it, they need staging, but the estate whoever the executor is the son or they just don't have the money or they just yeah have we have i mean that's the great thing about the concierge program um sure. and i have a whole separate lookbook on just the estates that we do because mm -hmm. that's the big part that's like my specialty right. i love those right the pricing model for you is a flat fee and then does that is yep. that a uh, is that your furniture right is it six months is three it, months typically three months fifteen thousand. Yep. yep so why is it to me, that sounds. I don't know about you. Does it sound short to you at fifteen thousand? Or do you think is that? How is that? Is usually that, the we don't. That's market. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know who sets it. I don't know what the you know. I, I'm not. I'm it's not become sort it's of the industry standard, and it's sort of if everything is synced up and done, you should be in contract within in like months. thirty to forty-five days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Board package gets turned around. Um, <laughs> the only time where, you know, here and there we have a couple of renewals, but they're on very challenging projects that everyone knows. Um, or sometimes some people do renew because the co-op board has been sitting with the application so long and no that's one tough. knows. Yeah, that's right. And tough. so... And that's not the seller's fault. Right. But it doesn't make sense financially. I had one happen. I've had it happen a few times. I think the one most notable was a project I did for Aaron Seawood years ago. Shout out Aaron. That this... Generic Upper East Side apartment went into contract, a one bedroom on East 70th Street, you know, second and third or 
first and second, went into contract in like 30 days. Everybody thought it was a done deal. They cleared out the staging. Um, and then the pandemic hit. The person who owned it died. Oh. But oh, yeah. the attorney lost the will. What? And so it ended up in this cra- in the middle of the pandemic, right? Just this whole crazy thing. <laughs> then they held off, right? So the estate's paying the maintenance. It's not like you get free, you no. know, maintenance or someone says you no. don't have to pay taxes. Never happens, yeah. So they ended up having to pay for like a over a year, and then we had to come back in, redo the apartment, and it, you know the market at that point was horrific. Mm-hmm. So they made a lot less, but so it was one of those things. Like if they kept it a little bit longer and gave the time to work it all out, it probably would have all worked, but. They didn't want to spend the like the thousand dollars to renew it for a month, and then no one would have ever predicted these things happen. But you know, that's that's one thing now. As I often say to people, listen, I used to be able to say, yeah, it's a no brainer. Like, you know, the sky's not going to fall. But then all of a sudden, the sky fell. So now it's sort of like air on the cautious side. Mm-hmm. What do you say to a seller that needs to sell, wants to stage, but is still living there and has nowhere else to go? Uh, I, I, here's a list of some other people who can help you. <laughs> I can't work with them, right? Yeah. I, I used to years ago, we're just, we're too busy. And the truth is it's just, it's too much work. And the, there's a difference between, you know, one, our inventory gets worn because yeah. of the, your furniture gets used and people don't want used furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, and number two, some people have confused the job of staging with interior design for their specific needs or sure. so it's like, Oh, this couch isn't as comfortable as you know, my old couch. And I'm like, I, you know, sorry, get a pillow. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. um, it's just, it's not what you we do. do like we're creating this like they theatrical experience. It's in their best interest if they want the best price, because the apartment always stays immaculate. You can show it at the drop of a hat. Like a lot of those issues are, are just all rectified when they're not there. But you know, listen, at the end of the day, that is not always a viable option for some people. Right. So you have to just sort of like make peace with it. But that doesn't mean to go back to what Danielle's saying with like, you know, tips and what can you suggest? Like you can sort of really restrict yourself to like understand, especially when you need the money, right? Like someone who needs this money, if you give them marching orders, nine times out of 10, they will do it because it's a direct correlation of how much profit they will make. Um, You know, when you have a renter in an apartment where it's listed for sale, they don't give a fuck. No. They don't care. Um, and you have like a rich dilettante in like their parents' apartment. They don't give a fuck. Yeah, they don't care. Um, you need someone broke who needs the money to do yeah. what like needs to get done. Right. What do you say to agents that I'm not, I'm not going to they'll never be in competition with you. But what do you say to those agents that are listing on listing side brokers that, you know, may want to get into this staging game? Do you recommend it? Do you I think advocate for them? Or do you yeah. say you have, you would have to hire somebody else? I would say feel free to come shadow with me for a week. Yeah. Um, listen, I think if anyone wants to do something, give it a try. I think, you know, the thing that people don't realize is it's a very expensive business to start up, right? Like you have to acquire physical inventory. You have to store it. In so the greater New York area. Yeah. It has to be good inventory, too. So yeah, it has to be good. Well, it can, <laughs> listen, no, but it can. I mean, that's the... you have Everybody starts somewhere, right? Have you seen the right? box? Have you seen the box? Yeah. Furniture. Yeah, right, right. I, I, I remember box that from a yeah. It is a do not play So ridiculous. It. <laughs> it's like, literally looks like a ghost funeral. It's yes. like, 
those gossamer like lace. It's ridiculous. I saw one yeah. where someone, there was this, there was an aspirant on the cardboard box couch. So stupid. It's like just spend money to like have it done. It's like it's amazing what some people will spend money on to save money, and then lose money. Um, but but going back to that to the to the starting the business like you you're you know look we live in an age where like storefronts are disappearing people mm -hmm. don't want to carry inventory drop shipping so you're now starting a business that relies solely on moving inventory from location to location mm -hmm. with with laborers um, it is an unbelievably expensive business. And that's why sometimes people say, you know, oh, this person is gonna do it for this price, can you? And I said, go pick them. Yeah, like, yeah. there's a reason that, that we can't do it at this price. That person works for themselves and their inventory looks like the homepage of the clearance section on Wayfair.com. Like, mm -hmm. and if that's what you think is gonna help increase the value of your home, then you go for it. But here's what we do. And I would say most rational, logical people very much understand that when I say tell me who when I look at and I, look I looked at their last three projects look at look at theirs for yourself and go look at ours mm -hmm. like if you were looking to buy a home or you were walking through that does one appeal to you more sure. than the other especially I had that happen recently and I said your your address is two fifth avenue like let's just think about that and sit on it for a second like this is the income level that people have to be at at two fifth avenue well, why don't you take a look at their last three examples? You're not satiated with cardboard boxes. Yeah. <laughs> and if you are, yeah, good luck, you honey. Have <laughs> you have a problem. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man. So thank I you really for finally making time and inviting me on Real Talk. The wealth been, of knowledge. It's been years. It's been years, yes. I, what, what, is, what has made you not think to invite me sooner? You know, it... It, the newsletter you sent really struck a chord with me. Because it had numbers in it. It had. Probably. That's pretty good. It, the numbers. <laughs> and speaking of numbers, I wanted to ask you one final question before you, we leave here. What's my do favorite you, number? Even if you think it's slightly overpriced, do you are you confident and you believe that you could sell 100% of the properties that's been staged? Um, our ratio is like, it's high 90s. Okay, that's great. But some even a little bit overpriced, not vastly overpriced. Obviously, that's a different story. It but. depends, though. I mean, listen, we've been in times recently where something was overpriced and then the market crashed, mm -hmm. right? And then all of a sudden it's just not, and then days on market. And so, for the most part, yes, but I have learned that you know, the few that didn't sell were always a seller who didn't really intend on in moving, mm. or the price was too high and the market was too volatile. Like that's when you look at the cases the that didn't margin. sell. Yeah, sure. Yeah, they weren't like it's not like they were relisted and restaged with someone else and they sold. It's the it's never come back on market. They decided not to move. Um, were too overpriced, and then the market crashed, and then whatever they had didn't work out, and then they were stuck there mm -hmm. because they didn't. I mean, we just lived through that, right? right. Like someone, up you know, it said everything said be here, and they said okay, I want to be here, mm -hmm. and that little bit though, I mean, that like. It comes down to SEO. If you're a little bit, but you're one search above where you should be and then no one's seeing your listing. I mean, that's something I think a lot of sellers don't realize. It's like, you know, especially within certain budgets, it's like people are looking on these aggregation models. You're given a number, right? I'm looking from here to here. It's a lot of people who don't go up here. No. And then again, it's like we lived in this period where the world went over here and prices and came down. down here. And then all of a sudden, they're now stuck with everyone else because they felt like they could just be 
so far above. And if you don't put in the work or things like that, you can end up in that spot. So if you stage it, what you're saying is 90% of the time, every time. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> no, like it's not <laughs> even a question. No question. Follow Jason again at stage to sell home on Instagram at stage to sell home. Check out the show notes and on his website, stage to sell home.com. Jason, All right, now, thank you so much. Wait, it's Valentine's day. Oh yes. And I think, that your listeners should have your first like male on male kiss. <laughs> you want us to kiss? Totally. <laughs> Don't you guys want us to kiss? <laughs> Danielle wants us to kiss. She's like, go. Thank you, Danielle. Danielle, do you have anything to say? We can count. <laughs> oh, oh. Danielle, she's, she's frosty. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Real Talk Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>